All right, well, I think we can uh, go ahead and get underway here. I want to thank all of you who are here in the Hayek Auditorium in uh, Cato's building in downtown DC for being with us. Those of you who are watching the live webcast, welcome to you as well. I'm Patrick Eddington. I'll be your moderator uh, for today's event, uh, which features our guest uh, to my immediate left here, Jack Goldsmith. And on the very end here, uh, Cato's Vice President, Gene Healy. Our topic today is Jack's latest book, which is In Hoffa's Shadow, A Stepfather, A Disappearance of My Search for the Truth. And the real subject of the book actually isn't quite as much Jimmy Hoffa as it is this guy walking right behind him, Charles Linton O'Brien, uh, who was Jack's stepfather. And I, I do want to begin by expressing our condolences, Jack, on uh, Chucky's passing in just these last uh, couple of weeks. We really do appreciate you carving out the time to be with us to talk about what is, quite frankly, an absolutely remarkable book. Let me just give a, a quick uh, plug here for, <clears throat> for Jack and for Gene. Uh, Jack is the Henry L. Shattuck Professor of Law at Harvard. He is the author, most recently, of course, uh, In Office Shadow, which we're going to talk about today, uh, as well as the Terror Presidency, Law and Judgment Inside the Bush Administration, uh, and other books and topics uh, on things such as terrorism, national security, international law, conflicts of law, et cetera, et cetera. Before going to Harvard, Jack served as the Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel from October 2003 to July 2004. And if you haven't heard of that office before, the Office of Legal Counsel, or as we call it, OLC, I would strongly recommend that you uh, uh, spend some time getting familiar with it because it is one of the least well understood and most important offices in the entire executive branch. Um, Gene Healy, of course, is vice president here at Cato, and his research interests include executive power and the role of the presidency, as well as federalization and overcriminalization. He's the author of a number of books, his most latest being Indispensable Remedy, The Broad Scope of the Constitution's Impeachment Power. He is also the editor of Go Directly to Jail, The Criminalization of Almost Everything. And it would, it would be an understatement to say that Gene has been kind of busy with his whole impeachment business the last six months or so. Um, I want to toss it over to Gene because I think he wants to give us a few remarks here to kind of set us up for the rest of the day. Yeah, I don't know if this is exactly a question, but I, well, maybe it'll turn into one. Uh, I don't mean to damn with faint praise, Jack, when I say that this is bar none the most interesting book I've ever read by a law professor. <laughs> uh, I haven't looked into what, what subcategory that Amazon tries to shoehorn it into. <laughs> But it strikes me as very hard to classify and to lead into. It's, a, you know, in part, a personal memoir and a rumination on, far, on fatherhood. Uh, it reminded me there are a lot of common themes with another excellent book I read last year, uh, Michael Brendan Darty's My Father Left Me Ireland. Uh, but it's also a true crime story about uh, the, I would say, most famous mob hit of the... Uh, and missing person story of the 20th century. Uh, it's in part a detective story. It involves, uh, I think, seven years of, that you spent. Uh, At least. Yeah, uh, working with uh, and interviewing uh, the FBI agents on the original task, originally with, uh, uh, with, Hoppe, with investigating Hoffa's disappearance. Uh, it's a labor history, a history of organized crime, and. Uh, it's also a story that has uh, uh, implications for uh, law and public policy, everything from uh, 
labor regulation to government surveillance to the prosecutorial power of the federal government. Uh, and I asked, uh, you know, there are some millennials who, outside my office. Uh, I asked them, uh, you know, what they knew about Jimmy Hoffa. Not much. And, yeah, not much. When I was growing up, uh, I grew up in, in uh, central New Jersey, and uh, it came up, the Hoffa disappearance came up every time we went to a concert at the Meadowlands because uh, <laughs> Jimmy Hoffa was, you know, there's an urban myth that he was buried there. Uh, but the center of, a, of, a, of all of this is your, your stepfather, uh, Chucky O'Brien, uh, and uh, someone who is, uh, I'd say it's fair to say is not a household name, but uh, has been portrayed in some fashion uh, by uh, Robert Duvall, Paul Newman, uh, Danny DeVito, and Jesse Plemons. Uh, the, uh, he's the basis, I guess, for uh, uh, Puzo's uh, Tom Hagen character in, in The Godfather, um, basis for the character that, uh, or inspiration for the character that Paul Newman plays in the movie Absence of Malice. Um, and as you put it, uh, he was your third father and your best. Uh, so. Set the scene for us and tell us a little bit about Chucky, his relationship with uh, Jimmy Hoffa, and his relationship with you. Sure. Thanks to you both for having me today. I'm very grateful to be here. So, Charles Chucky O'Brien was um, born in Kansas City, Missouri. His mother was a woman named Sylvia Pagano. In my estimation, she's the most interesting character in the book, but I couldn't find out much about her. What, did I, what I did find out made me want to learn a lot more. Sylvia Pagano was part of the Italian, uh, Kansas City Italian crime family, and she had, all of her relatives were big shots in that family, and that's where Chucky was raised. Chucky's father was Irish, so he was half Irish, half, half Sicilian, which means he could never be a made man, but he always identified with his Sicilian side. And uh, to make a long story short, he and his mom moved to Detroit um, in uh, the early 1940s, late 1930s, where Sylvia, through a long story, met Jimmy Hoffa. And Sylvia was actually the one, Chucky's mother, who introduced Hoffa to the mob, to the Detroit mob and to other mobsters around the country because she was actually a very consequential woman. I haven't found a more consequential woman in, in mob circles in those decades. Um, and she introduced Chucky to Hoffa. Chucky's father left when he was seven years old. He was a fatherless boy, always looking for love and attention. He met Hoffa when he was nine. Hoffa had two young children, but for reasons that I, no one really knows, he took an immediate shine to Chucky, and Chucky fell in love with Hoffa and stayed in love with him until the day he died. Uh, Hoffa was his idol. Uh, starting when Chucky was 18 or 19, he became Hoffa's right-hand man. They were inseparable from the early 50s until Hoffa went to jail in the late 1960s through all of... Um, so let me just back up and say just a word on who Jimmy Hoffa was that most people in this audience probably know, but Hoffa was the most consequential labor leader in the country and the best-known labor leader in the country in the 50s and 60s at a time when labor unions mattered much more than they do today. And he was also dogged by the Justice Department for, he was, in, he was a serial lawbreaker. That, that understates what he was. He was indifferent to law and would do whatever he thought uh, 
would advance his goals um, without regard to the law. And he skirted the law for many decades. And, and, but Bobby Kennedy went after him for a long time. Chucky was by Hoffa's side during the trials, during the Kennedy vendetta against him, during, the, um, um, during Hoffa's many amazing labor feats. And he was, has not been given the credit that, he's, that is due to him for his accomplishments as a labor organizer. Hoffa finally goes to jail in the 60s. He gets out of jail. He wants to get his union back. He can't get his union back, mainly because Richard Nixon put a condition on his, the commutation of his sentence. Nixon let him out of prison. And to make a very long story short, and I can talk about this more, it, Hoffa uh, became increasingly angry. Chucky thinks he kind of lost it a little bit and started threatening, for reasons that aren't really clear since this wasn't going to remove the Nixon condition, started threatening to disclose the ties between the mob and the Teamsters Union, which Hoffa basically was a part of, but which had grown much worse since Hoffa left, since Hoffa kept him at arm's length. Hoffa disappears famously, almost certainly a mob hit on July 30th, 1975, and within a week, and this is, by the way, six weeks after Chucky married my mother, six weeks before Hoffa disappeared, Chucky marries my mom, he's my new stepfather, as you say, he was my third father and my greatest. I was, I think I had the same kind of outsized affection for him that he had for Jimmy Hoffa. He was an amazing father. But six weeks after he married my mom and one week after the Hoffa disappearance, Chucky became the leading suspect in the disappearance. He was the person that the FBI said in August 1975, picked up Hoffa and drove him to his death, which meant that we, my family, and mostly Chucky, was caught up in the whole maelstrom of the disappearance, which was quite oppressive. And um, so that's kind of a thumbnail sketch of the background. I'm not sure if that's what you wanted, but that's... Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, to put it in perspective <laughs> and to, to, you know, lead people through uh, the basic outlines of the story. Uh, Pat, did you uh, want to... So what is it with fish and the mob? <laughs> <laughs> right? So there's, for those of you, you know who've seen The Godfather, you remember there is, there is a scene, this, this is when Sonny is basically, played by James Caan, is running it, and one of the individuals they sent out to try to infiltrate another family doesn't succeed. And so there is this wrapped package that comes to the Corleone estate in which the bulletproof vest that had been on the Corleone muscle man it has been used to wrap a fish. And then, you know, one of the, one of the other uh, Corleone guys says, you know, that's Sicilian. It says that so-and-so, Clemenza, I think is who it was, sleeps with the fishes. So you got this, this spot on page 17 of the book where you note that on the day the Hoffa vanished, Chucky had borrowed someone's cart, quote, to deliver a fresh salmon from the Teamsters Detroit headquarters to the home of a senior Teamster official. Yeah. Was that a warning? Was that a message? No, this was actually an accident. Some people think, who've read the book, think that this is Chucky's great alibi. So Chucky was in Detroit wrapping up his affairs because he was leaving Detroit. He had just married my mom, and he was going to, he had been transferred to Florida. He was sitting at the downtown uh, Teamsters offices on the morning of July 30th and 75, and a frozen salmon arrives, 45-pound frozen salmon leaking. And it was sent to a uh, Teamsters official named Bobby Holmes. 
Chucky didn't have anything to do. Bobby Holmes was out of town, and the secretary basically said, can you take this to Vi Holmes, the wife of the man to whom it was delivered, out in the suburbs? So this, you're going to now get some of the circumstantial evidence for why the FBI suspected Chucky. Uh, so Chucky borrows, so I forgot to tell one important detail. Chucky was extremely close to Jimmy Hoffa. Hoffa was like a father to him. Many people thought Hoffa was his real father, and Chucky was his illegitimate son. But he had an equally powerful father to him. He was also close, a man named Anthony Giacalone, who was a senior Detroit mobster and really the guy who ran the mob in Detroit. And Hoffa and Giacalone were very close also, so Chucky was kind of the go-between between them. So Chucky gets this salmon. He has nothing to do. He doesn't have a car because we have his car. I was fishing in a lake in Arkansas. We had used his car. He had given us his car. And he borrows a car from Joey Giacalone, the son of this mobster I just told you about. And he says, Joey, can I borrow your car? I got to deliver this frozen salmon to the suburbs. Now, this sounds somewhat implausible, but this part is all documented. So this wasn't, the, the salmon wasn't about the mob. It came from a Teamsters official in Seattle. Chucky puts this salmon in the car. He goes and he delivers the salmon. And the delivery of the salmon was in the general vicinity of where Hoffa disappeared. So he was in the general vicinity where Hoffa disappeared. And his claimed whereabouts on that afternoon were contested. But there really was a salmon, and it really was leaking blood. Soon after the disappearance, um, they impounded the car, which he uh, was driving. And the headline said, you know, blood found in car suspected of picking up Hoffa. Chucky said it was salmon blood. The headline the next day said, no salmon blood, no human blood, it's salmon blood. And to make it completely weird, none of that was true uh, in the sense that the FBI, despite the headlines, said never found blood in the car, never, and they never determined that what they didn't find was salmon blood. But in any event, the salmon has a kind of central weird role in the disappearance. And it, uh, it shows up in... The, in the movie. Uh, in the movie. Yeah. Uh, and uh, at the time that the movie came out, the uh, Scorsese movie, uh, I had started your book, but I hadn't <clears throat> gotten to the salmon part. I'm watching this. It's, it's bizarre in the, in the, you know, out of context. There's a, a riff on it where one of them, I can't remember if it's... Sal Berguglio. Yeah, is uh, sort of yelling at Jesse Plemons as Chucky uh, for having this you know, fish in the, in the backseat of a car. Um, but that's probably a good jumping off point for you to discuss uh, the, uh, the Irishman and the book that it's, uh, that it's based on. Uh, this, uh, because, uh, you know, you're, I, I understand your concern with uh, the Scorsese movie and the book that it's based on is that it uh, sort of, repeats the injury done to Chucky uh, it initially by the FBI. Uh, the worry is that uh, uh, because he's, uh, you know, Chucky is in the car that, uh, according to this story, takes Hoffa uh, to, his, to his death, uh, that he's once again implicated in this story. I kind of think from my viewing of the movie, the main takeaway people are going to get is that CGI aging technology uh, in the, <laughs> doesn't uh, work very well in, in the, the late 2020s or the late teens uh, was not really yeah. uh, up to snuff. Right. So 
from 1975 um, until this movie comes out in 2019, there have been thousands of stories that repeated the claim that, and, and half a dozen books that repeated the claim that Chucky drove a car that picked up Hoffa and then drove him to his death. And every one of those, and, and there, even though that general account is in every account you, you will ever read about or see in a movie, not see in a movie, but read about about the disappearance, they all have different details. This guy was in the car, that guy was in the car, uh, Chucky drove him here, this thing happened to him there, he was shot, he was knifed, he was garroted. But um, the FBI was very confident and said so publicly that Chucky picked up Hoffa in the car. So that is the one fact that has been common to all of the, it's all fake, all of the stories about what happened to Hoffa. And I'll just say a couple of things about that. Um, I, mean, I think I show pretty convincingly that Chucky did not pick up Hoffa that day and he was never in the car with Hoffa that day. And by the way, that's what the FBI now thinks as well and they have thought so for 25 years though they didn't bother to tell anyone. Um, so this book is basically just repeating the story that's been told for 44 years and has been conventional wisdom except it puts different people in the car. It puts, it puts Sharon in the car. Um, so for Chucky, it was weird. He's a, see, he passed away three weeks ago, but he, um, you know, he's been. So first of all, Chucky is not innocent. It's not, I mean, he's a he's not an angel. Uh, he's been involved in crime his whole life. He and I have quite different views about the law and compliance <laughs> with the law. He's hung out with mobsters his whole life, and back to one. It's not a, a fish, but. Uh, in one of the memorable scenes in the book, uh, the uh, it's a it's a editorialist for Martin Hayden was the ed executive editor of the Detroit News. Right, uh, he <laughs> delivers a cadaver's head to or has it sent. No one in particular, like a you know, a, he just not, went not to the, he, knew. he just went to the morgue and it was meant to scare him and he bought a head, which would do the trick. Yeah, apparently, <laughs> apparently it did do the trick. So this is a man who. You know, was Hoffa's right-hand man and was involved in criminality his whole life, and he knew and was intimate with mobsters. But, um, so I'm not trying to paint a picture of Chucky as, as an innocent, but I'm convinced that he wasn't in the car that day. I think I make a good case for it. And as I say, the FBI um, agrees with that now. But imagine, for 44 years starting in 75, to read, if I'm right, to read story after story, movie after movie, over and over again that portrays him in the car as the movie did. He had gotten used to that. It's just had become part of his world. Uh, but the movie stung in a way that the other things didn't because, um, first of all, it played him like a dimwit. And uh, Jesse Plemons basically played a dimwit. And uh, second of all, of course, everyone believes it <laughs> because it, the Scorsese film is portrayed as true crime and Many, many millions of people will watch it. So that's just something he's had to live with his whole life, basically. And they did sort of put the Frank Sheeran in Chucky's place also as uh, a more prominent associate of... Uh, yes. So Sheeran in the movie is, and in the book, is essentially a Chucky. Chucky's role, yes. Yeah. Sheeran was not close to Hoppe. This was something that Chucky didn't anticipate in the book that was devastating to him. Um, 
Sharon was not close to Hoffa. He knew Hoffa. Hoffa knew him. Hoffa used him in, in the local in Delaware. But uh, the book and the movie basically portray Sheeran as Hoffa's intimate, on-the-road, right-hand man, bodyguard, and the like. And that was Chucky's role in his life. And Chucky gave 30 years of his life, and it was the thing he was most proud of in his life. So this movie basically takes away that part of his identity and gives it to Sheeran and then has him in the car killing this man who was basically his father. He was pretty, he was pretty upset about it. You did get very close. Uh, I mean, it, it's clear from the book, not only from the, uh, you know, the appendix with the chronology, but uh, the FBI agents, uh, you know, on point for this case, uh, do not believe or did not believe yep. after a period of time that he was implicated. Right. And uh, if I recall, you got uh, fairly close in, would it be, the mid 2010s uh, to getting an acknowledgement from the close but no cigar right. yeah they, they, they came close to telling to basically they were going to say that Chucky wasn't a subject or target of the investigation all and that and they didn't follow through on that so one of the most interesting and fun things about writing this book and it was seven years of hard research was I contacted every FBI agent who ever worked the case over 44 years and I basically got to know all of them who were alive, and I got to know them very well, and I became very good friends with many of them, including the ones who were the original FBI agents on the case who pointed the finger at Chucky. I have to say my opinion of the FBI is quite mixed, but these original agents from the 70s were extraordinary men of extraordinary integrity. And um, so they helped me fill in that part of the story. I actually convinced them that Chucky wasn't involved. One of them said so in the book. The guy who set off the claim in an affidavit in 75 that Chucky drove him to his death, said he was convinced that he didn't do it. I became very close with an agent uh, who was on the case for the longest for 15 years named Andrew Sluss. <coughs> he taught me a lot. Um, so the book is you know, very heavily reported on. I have a lot of documents about the case and what was really going on in the case as opposed to what the FBI was portraying in public about the case. One of the remarkable things about the case, I actually became obsessed with trying to solve the Hoffa disappearance. And all of these FBI agents, going back 44 years now, 45 years almost, to this day they're still obsessed with trying to solve it, which is why they spent so much time with me. It's an obsessive case. You made some interesting comments about the FBI. Um, at a minimum, I share them. <laughs> I, I, I might go a tad bit further. But what interests me is the mentality, right? Yeah. So the, the guy, as I recall it from the book, who really got the Bureau spun up to focus on your stepfather was Hoffa's son. Yes, that's correct. And so basically the first week, the, the days after the disappearance, so Hoffa's son, Hoffa's true son, and Chucky were longtime rivals, really rivals for Hoffa's affection, and they didn't think well for one, of one another going back decades. And as soon as the disappearance happened and the FBI in the first interview with Hoppe's <laughs> son, he basically pointed the finger at Chucky. He told them a story about why Chucky was in league with these mobsters and why Chucky had had a falling out with Hoffa. And they pointed the finger at Chucky and that had a huge impact on the case. And there, and there was never really an effort, at least so far as I could tell from, the man, from reading the book, of, of those same initial agents to go back 
and really ask themselves the fundamental question, okay, why is Hoffa's son telling us this? Yes. You know, why, why is it? And the reason I bring this up is, you know, we've seen a series of high-profile cases where the FBI essentially develops a, quote, theory of the case, yes. right? Brandon Mayfield uh, from 2004 timeframe is falsely accused by the FBI globally. I mean, this is a global story right. of being one of the Madrid train bombers or being in somehow league with them. His reputation is destroyed, essentially. And then you have uh, the Amerithrax case, right. which was grinding on even as you got to the Justice Department, uh, where Stephen Hatfield was essentially, so far as we know, falsely accused of, of being involved in that. Why is it that folks in, in law enforcement, and this is not just an FBI problem, right? I mean, this, I think this is a, a more generic law enforcement problem. What is it, in your view, that causes folks in that profession to necessarily yeah. get tunnel vision? So I'm not an expert on this, but I developed views in the course of writing the book. I can, I can speak not to the general problem, but, but to what happened in this case. And it's probably a version of what happens in all these cases. So these young ag agents were under unbelievable pressure to figure out what happened here. Just unbelievable. This was, this was, as many people may remember, front page news and the lead story in the evening news for weeks and weeks. And it was a story for years and years. And they were under incredible pressure to figure it out. And it turned out, it was, it was not just Jimmy pointing the finger at Chucky. That's definitely pointing them in that direction. There was some circumstantial evidence that pointed to Chucky. And the thing of it was, and I think this is the way a lot of these cases happen, they, once they looked at Chucky and once they um, saw some circumstantial evidence, which upon reflection 20 years later seems like it cuts the other way, yeah. but in the heat of things, they didn't have any other leads. Yeah. And they were convinced because of his associations. They never, so Chucky talked to the FBI twice in August of 2016. It's inconceivable in retrospect that he could have done that, that the mob would have let him or that he would have done it. He hated the FBI if, if he were in any way involved. And they were actually surprised. They were shocked when he showed up because they assumed he would never show up. But it was the overwhelming pressure to decide the case, nothing better. And also, Chucky seemed shifty. He was not a good interviewer. He did have things to hide, not about his involvement, but he knew the people involved. And even though he didn't know the details, he knew the background. So there were reasons for them to focus on him, but what they, what they didn't do, uh, and I don't really blame them because um, of all the biases we know about and all the pressure they were under. They didn't ask themselves, at least it's not apparent in the record, whether, you know, about all the circumstantial evidence that cuts the other way. Why would, the, why would the crime of the century be committed in the leading mobster in town's son's car? Yeah. Why would Chucky um, deliver this salmon and be sitting there talking to the woman he delivered the salmon to, helping her chop up the fish as if he didn't have a care in the world at the time in which he was allegedly supposed to pick up Hoffa? If, if Chucky did it, he was 30 or 40 minutes late. Why would Chucky, the next morning, this is an extraordinary coincidence, he didn't have a car and he was getting a ride to work every morning from the very shopping center where Hoffa supposedly disappeared. The morning after the disappearance, when no one knew about the disappearance, Chucky shows up at the shopping mall and is sitting there, you know, whistling away, waiting for his ride to come without a care in the world. So there was lots of circumstantial evidence to cut the other way and they just, 
again, I'm not an expert. I know this. I came to understand in this case that this happens a lot. And yeah. talking to a lot of prosecutors and now defense counsel, this happens a lot. Um, like it's, I actually think it's understandable, but the, the problem and the danger is, of course, is they, they can ruin people's lives just by the allegation. And then the real thing is there's no mechanism to pull it back. Yeah. You know, once the damage is done, there's no mechanism to pull it back. So in these situations, I always try to put myself in the shoes of the people who are doing these things that I'm being critical of. And, you know, those agents had every reason to think that Chucky was involved and he was acting strangely. And so it was, it was understandable that they looked at him, but they looked way too much at him and they didn't consider alternate possibilities. And they didn't go back either. Yeah. So, as you say, it's a typical... I, mean, I, I don't know how one fixes this problem, given the powers that prosecutors and investigators have. You would say give them less power, but they can, they can do this even with less power. I, I guess, in some respects, what I would say is that, sure, rolling back some of the authorities, I think, putting some more constraints on it would be helpful. But I think this is a case where some kind of genuine oversight mechanism you know, that, that causes some level of like real review as we go along. And right. to me, that ultimately is, a, is both a management issue, yes. right, and an institutional culture issue. Right. But the problem is that there was such a review. It took place in January of uh, six months after this, five months after this appearance at the FBI headquarters in, in January of 76 in Washington. But the review was... Why haven't you found the people who did this? Right. Why can't you prosecute O'Brien? Right. And they, they came out of that thing saying, we have to put everybody in jail. There was no, um, not the kind of review you're talking about. An IG type review. Ultimately. Nothing like that. Yeah. But are you going to do that with every investigation? It's tough. Yeah. You could do that, you know, they, look, you could do that selectively ex post. You know, it's going to be very interesting on a different but related um, issue you know, the IGs and, uh, looking at Title I of FISA and mm -hmm. whether what happened in the, um, Carter Page. in the Carter Page application was typical or atypical. It's very bad for the FBI either way. <laughs> but, um, you know, you can do that in high-profile cases. Um, what happened in the Hoffa investigation was very, there was an intense focus for two years. Yeah. They figured out that they couldn't figure out who did it, but what they discovered was in doing that intense investigation that they had discovered like they never had before that the mob had infiltrated the Teamsters like they didn't know. So they just moved on. Yeah. They just shifted gears. Yeah. And frankly, if it hadn't been for this agent in the 90s, the case kind of died after that in the early 80s. If it hadn't been for this new agent in the 90s who reread the case file for the first time in 20 years, all of the kind of... Um, of the biases that infected the initial investigation were more obvious to him 20 years later. If he hadn't have done that, we never would have, you know, they learned, they, they now have a different theory altogether of who did it and why. And this was the guy that tried to clear Chucky's name. Yeah. So that was just an accident. Just an accident. It's a serious problem. I don't have a good solution to it. Hey, let's uh, step back a little earlier in the chronology uh, and uh, in terms of obsession, uh, Bobby Kennedy's obsession with Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> Uh, starting out on the McClellan Committee, uh, and then uh, with the Get Hoffa, the so-called Get Hoffa Squad, uh, when he becomes Attorney General, the circumstances that lead Hoffa to going to jail. Right. You may tell the story? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so 
Hoffa um, in the in the fifties was becoming very powerful nationally in the Teamsters. He was he had basically was in charge of the center part of the country, and he was basically expanding his influence in both directions. And he was going to run for the president of the Teamsters in nineteen fifty seven. And a very young Bobby Kennedy had decided in 1956, he was looking for an issue to, you know, a cause. He was an angry man looking for a cause. And he also wanted to help his brother's presidential chances in 1960. This is all pretty much established. And there had been an earlier investigation in the 50s of the mob that had been nationally televised and that had the people that had run that had become nationally popular. So he viewed that as a model. And so he decided to look into uh, labor mob relations. And there was a lot to look into, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> there was a lot of bad things going on. And very quickly, he was, he was a 32-year-old, barely out of law school, not without any legal experience, but because of his family connections, he was basically put in charge of the investigation. And he proceeded to basically break every rule in the book for legislative investigations. There aren't many rules to break. But he broke them. Um, he would utter falsehoods. He would badger witnesses. He would make fun of them for invoking their constitutional rights. He would put out, uh, he had the press in his pocket. He would put out misleading press releases. He was rough, he was abusing, if not violating the law. And uh, this was some of the earliest aggressive uses of IRS files to go after, to, to put pressure on not just Hoffa, but his friends. Uh, and he did this for three years, and he still couldn't put Hoffa away. Hoffa was nimble, and Kennedy wasn't very good at what he was doing. Hoffa was nimble at staying out of trouble. So Hoffa survived that, and it actually had a devastating impact on the labor movement. You can see, you can see public confidence in labor unions literally start dropping historically at the moment the McClellan Committee investigation of Hoffa began. And labor historians attribute it to the kind of corruption narrative that Kennedy painted, which had an element of truth, but he painted with too broad a brush. Then Bobby becomes attorney general, and there he's got a lot more power. And he put everything he had on putting Hoffa away. Uh, Hoffa did everything he could, including breaking the law to resist going to jail. Ironically, Kennedy finally got him not for any of his involvement with the mob, but for jury tampering, and pension fund fraud that had nothing to do with the mob. But he broke a lot of rules there, too. And it, I, think, you know, I think the Kennedy pursuit of Hoffa is probably the paradigmatic case in American history of a, an abusive, vendetta-driven prosecutor. Again, acknowledging that there's crime on the other side, but asking whether the restraints that are supposed to inform prosecutions were, were uh, abided by, and they weren't. And we're talking about a lot of wiretapping here. Oh, that part, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just talking about the law enforcement. So maybe the most extraordinary thing I came across in the book, I don't know how much y'all knew about this. Um, a little bit. I, yeah, I knew, I, I knew a little bit about this. Um, so J. Edgar Hoover, through the 1950s, basically for reasons that are still debated, did not want the FBI to be investigating organized crime. He would always say, I'm not sure it exists, I'm not sure it's a problem, we don't have jurisdiction. There was a famous mob enclave in Appalachian, New York in the late 50s 
that basically exposed the mob for being a much bigger organization with much more influence. And at that point, Hoover was forced to act against it. And he played catch up by basically putting bugs, illegal bugs, uh, miniature microphones, in you know mob hangouts all over the country. And um, you know, I'm an aficionado of bad Justice Department legal opinions. <laughs> um, and it was just remarkable how casually the executive branch in secret told itself that it could surveil by wire. That was, there was an arguable case there, but the surveillance by bugs, you had to break in to put the bugs in. The Supreme Court had made very clear that it was illegal, and they did it anyway, and they did it because it was in secret. And the original justification for doing so was national security, but they extended it to the mob, which was domestic crime, and is really just, you know, if there's a core to the Fourth Amendment, that would be it. Anyway, they broke in and they were planted these bugs and they just recorded everything. And two places they recorded were Chucky's mom's apartment and Uncle Tony, my Uncle Tony, as I used to call him, Jack Aloni's. Uh, he was at the big mobster in Detroit and he was also dating Sylvia Pagano, Chucky's mom, his offices. And they just swept up everything. And these are all now in transcript form. And I read, I don't know how many thousands and thousands of pages of this. And it was just the most, it's very hard to describe. Um, it was, imagine if there was a bug in your kitchen and living room and bedroom and the government was just listening in 24-7 and not minimizing anything. And so the full sweep of human activity and emotion, good, bad, and otherwise, was there on display. And uh, this went on for a long time. And it, you know, it came out in the 60s. We had our first wave of first small wave before the Church Committee of Surveillance Reform. But it was really quite shocking. And, but I have to say, good for my narrative, <laughs> because I learned a lot about the various characters in my book, and I basically told a story, I think, pretty effectively about how abusive the government was in doing this. And, of course, the Church Committee in 75 exposed all of this stuff and talked about it. They barely mentioned these dozens and dozens of bugs on mob figures because, you know, they're not very attractive people. They're lawbreakers. And they focus on the Martin Luther King bugs and the bugs of members of Congress and the legal wiretaps here and there. But from a purely legal standpoint, this was may have been the low point of you know, the pre-church committee um, really abusive surveillance state. Well, and then what, what, all, would you, would you, do you agree with that assessment? Um, well, I think... In terms of... In, in so terms, so they, they had an art, you know, the justification for King was preposterous. Yeah. But it had a tie to communism, and there's an, at least a, there's at least a patina of an argument: communism, national security. That's all I mean. When it comes to, I'm not saying it's justified. Yeah. When it comes to domestic criminals and breaking in and planting bugs, there was just nothing to be said for it. It was just in the, flying in the face of Supreme Court precedent. Yeah. Well, this all goes back. This whole we can do this in the name of national security <clears throat> goes back to a, a case called Nardone. Uh, in, in late 1939, in which the, the, the Communications Act uh, was at issue and whether or not the government could engage in some of the kinds of things that Jack has been discussing. And the Supreme Court was very clear, no, you can't do that. Well, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in a May 21, 1940 memo to his then Attorney General and future Supreme Court Justice, Robert Jackson, said, in essence, and I'm spitballing here, 
but, Probably not much. But, <laughs> but yes, I agree with the Supreme Court, you know, generally this shouldn't be done. However, in case of national security, under my authority, I think it's necessary, go forth and do it. Correct. That, that's, a, that's basically what he said. Uh, and so this is the genesis of it, and, and it just kind of takes off. So, I mean, I think as a general proposition, I'd probably, probably agree with you. What I will also say, though, is that with 75 million government documents minimally still classified, spanning True. 75, 80 years at this True. point, I think it's difficult True. for us to necessarily. And then, of course, with all the stuff that Hoover had in his files, his personal True. files, that he destroyed. Yes. Right? Which which none of us, I mean, Athen Theo Harris has written about this extensively. Yeah. Yes. That that's my that, that would be my only caveat. Yeah, so I, I'm actually not disagreeing with. with you. I'm not claiming that this was the worst thing Hoover did. I'm not saying that. Yeah. I'm saying, and this is a technical legal point. Yeah. Um, you know, what they were, you were talking about was really about wiretaps. And there was a complicated set of legal issues about wiretaps. And the legal issues were complicated. I think the government overstepped its bounds, but there were arguments on both sides. With regard to bugs, yeah. which is, there, there was no argument for what the government was doing. And with regard to using bugs against criminals, as opposed to someone with some national security nexus, that was also on the low end of the possible justifications. So all I mean is, really the only point I wanted to make is, there was just this massive rampant illegality that was unambiguously illegal. Yeah. And the church committee barely talked about it. And I'm not criticizing them, it's just, it's just to point out that it was much bigger than yeah. than they uh, than they than they told us about it. As you say, there's a lot we don't know about. Well, and that was for me in, in the project that I've been working on. What was really interesting to, to learn is just exactly how much the the church committee did not spend time on the Secret Service. Right. And the Secret Service is really the the agency that kind of got this whole domestic spying thing going in a really big way. Uh, but I think. One of the things that I find interesting about the law, and as a layman, is how little the law often matters, right? And, and it really comes down to power. This is uh, Chucky's concept of backup. Yeah. The brilliant backup. Yeah. So my stepfather, Chucky, he, when I was a young man, he would talk about how the FBI would come after us because we were crooks, but they were breaking every law in the world when they were coming after us. And he called it backup. And what he meant was, after I figured it out, because he's not a lawyer, what he meant was is they get to interpret the law in secret. And if some law gets in the way, they just ignore it and go about their business. And I'm sorry to say that he was absolutely right over a lot of, for decades and decades and decades. And, um, and what got you going on this was your time in the Office of Legal Counsel. Correct. Right? I opened the book... Um, so I had the misfortune of being the head of the Office of Legal Counsel in 2003 and 2004, and I inherited uh, the Bush warrantless wiretapping program. And um, so we can talk about this if you like. I did my best to, to do what I thought was the right thing there. Um, and, but very early on when I was, so I came to this program knowing not as much as I should have about the Fourth Amendment and even less about foreign intelligence surveillance law. So I was scrambling to catch up because this was a gigantically complicated program. It seemed on my first read like it had huge factual and legal problems even before I really got up to speed. And I was desperately trying to 
you know, basically in my evenings, because I had a day job, to get up to speed on this case so I could figure out what I could approve and what not. And I was one night, and I should say that I had been, um, I hadn't spoken to Chucky at this point in 20 years because this is also part of the book. As a young man, even though he was a wonderful, wonderful father, I basically blew him off in my early 20s, and I'm not proud of this. And I did so largely because the things I used to be proud of about him I came to be ashamed of, and because I was basically very selfish. I didn't think, I decided I wanted to go to law school. I wasn't that clever, and I didn't know much about law, but I figured out that being the stepson of the leading suspect in the Hoffa disappearance, and having Uncle Tony Jacaloni and Uncle Tony Provenzano as you know, close family friends might not work out very well for me in the, in the uh, legal world, especially in the government. So basically, I cut Chucky out of my life, and I hadn't really thought about him. And I'm sitting in the Justice Department one night, and I'm reading these Fourth Amendment decisions. Basically, the decisions we're talking about, starting with Nardone. Basically, the history of the Fourth Amendment as it concerns electronic surveillance. And I get to the 1960s, and I'm reading a case called Berger. And I come across two citations. One was Hoffa versus United States, and the other was O'Brien versus United States. And it's, I just get chills when I just said it because it's very hard to describe the impact this had on me. Because first of all, I was incredibly anxious with what I was doing. I mean, what I was doing was completely unprecedented, rethinking this program, maybe cutting back on it. The stakes were incredibly high. I was just as nervous as I'd ever been in my life and anxious. And then I come across these citations and I said, that can't be. And I printed out the cases and they turned out to be cases from the 1960s where the Supreme Court had basically vacated convictions involving Chucky and Hoffa for illegal wiretapping, excuse me, illegal bugs. Uh, the bugs we were talking about emerged, that whole practice emerged in the mid-60s and the Supreme Court had to go through this. The government had to basically drop a lot of prosecutions because they were, they were some illegal bugs had been implicated. Chucky had stolen some things at the Detroit warehouse, a marble statue and some things like that, or allegedly, as he says. Uh, anyway, he got off the hook. He had always told me when I was a kid that he had this famous Supreme Court case and that the government had abused its surveillance powers, and I frankly didn't believe him, and this case wasn't important enough that I would have read it in law school. So here I am, knee-deep. Knee-deep is probably, is probably higher up than that in a legal surveillance program, and I'm trying to get my hands around and I hadn't thought about my stepfather in 20 years, and the only reason I'm at the Justice Department, probably, at least a but-for cause, is that I blew him off 20 years earlier. Never would have gotten the political or classified information clearances otherwise. Here I was atop the Justice Department working on this illegal surveillance program, and Chucky comes back into my life, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks that he was right with what he said about backup. And there I was doing it. Um, so that was, to put it mildly, a very powerful moment for me that um, had a big impact. I do have to say one of the, I don't know if it was supposed to be laugh out loud funny, but uh, one of the, the passages in the book where I did actually laugh out loud is, uh, I believe it's your interview with uh, David Addington, Cheney's Cheney, and uh, I guess Gonzalez, the then Attorney General, uh, would have been, no, he was White House counsel. He was White House counsel then. Yeah. You're talking about 2004? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, when you're, it's 
sort of the, the record scratches when they, they ask, you know, well, is there anything else we should know about you? <laughs> this, is you during say, my, this is during my, when they were interviewing me for the job for the first time. <laughs> and you say, there's one possible thing. My former stepfather is the leading suspect in Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance and has long been associated with the mafia. <laughs> and the amazing thing was I still got the job. <laughs> yeah. That was... And you... Got the, you, you got the job and the clearances uh, in part because you had given yeah. Chucky the, the cold shoulder for 20 years, but this, your experience uh, in the Bush Justice Department it, uh, in the months afterwards is when you, uh, you reconcile and you... Yeah. Uh, Those were the, the, that was a trial by fire for me, which I'm still recovering from, but... Um, it, over the course of that next six months when I was working on this, I thought about him a lot. And, you know, I thought I was really smart and he wasn't very smart and I thought I knew what I was talking about and he didn't. And here he was on something very fundamental and he wasn't a lawyer and he was right. And um, so that and a whole bunch of other things uh, when I left the government led me to rethink my relationship with him and ask for forgiveness which I did and which he gave me. And we became very close after that. You know, you, um, you made a reference essentially to having been um, not, uh, not the best Christian um, in that period. Give us a sense of how your faith informs your, your journey yeah. here. Yeah. And, and so I was... Um, I only have a sentence on this in the book, but it was more powerful than that. So, <clears throat> so it's very, very hard to describe. I mean, I don't know how much you know about this, but my year, my nine and a half months in the Justice Department, I basically spent all of my time trying to, um, dealing with the just quite unprecedented problem of having the most consequential and important and secret national counterterrorism programs going on just were fundamentally legally flawed from top to bottom. And it wasn't really my job to fix them, but for a variety of reasons, it came my job to fix them. And it's really impossible to explain how stressful this was because it had never happened before. The stakes were huge. I was being told people would die. I didn't know what the right answer was because frankly, everybody thinks this was easy. I didn't think it was easy um, for a whole in context. And it wasn't easy to stop something once it had started. It's, frankly, it's never happened that I know of. Um, so this was the most stressful time of my life. And I had always been a weak tea Christian. I had been a weak tea Christian for a while. But uh, my wife was more faithful uh, than I. We would go to church. And frankly, I just started reading the Bible more carefully during this period and thinking more about uh, Christ and Christ's teachings, and one of the things that I just, you know, I, I quoted this in the book, the, um, I think, you know, when Jesus says that you need to um, quit looking at the speck in the other person's eye and get the log out of yours, and basically quit being judgmental when you've got a lot of your own sins to be focused on, and that was basically how I assume I saw my relationship with Chucky and all of the opportunism the personal opportunism that had gone into me blowing him off and, you know, advancing in my career and getting to this, to the top, it seemed very much not worth it and not right. 
especially since he was, I didn't really explain this, he was an amazing father to me. And I'm quite sure whatever success I've had in my life, I wouldn't have had, but for him, what he did for me when I was a teenager. Uh, we were in bad shape, our family was in bad shape. He was in bad shape, but he was an amazing father. And so he didn't deserve what happened to him, and my, my faith definitely informed that. I mean, you know, forgiveness and begging him for forgiveness, seeing my own hypocrisy and my own moral failings a little more clearly instead of focusing on his, it informed all of that. I, I bring that up not to put you on the spot. You're not putting me on the spot, it's in the book. Um, but um, within the libertarian community in, in which I basically operate, I, I tend to be, I think, a little bit of an odd duck because I think I share a lot of your, uh, your worldview in that respect. Um, and that's the reason that I pulled that out because it, this whole journey of, of forgiveness and reconciliation, quite honestly for me, was easily the best thing about the book. Thank you. And, and the, most, the most, certainly for me, the most powerful. Um, the rest of it was really just kind of scary as hell. Fundamentally. <laughs> yeah. Whether, whether we talk about what the government is doing over here. Yeah, or the mob is doing. Or what the mob is doing over here. Yeah. Um, yeah. But By the way, if there's one, you know, at the top of the list, I'm sorry to uh, editorialize, at the top of the list of problems in our country right now is that we've lost our ability to uh, have forgiveness, to have empathy. I, I just really think it's, it's a terrible, terrible thing. I think it's a very important thing and it's terrible that we've lost it. I think um, probably everybody in this room and probably everybody watching uh, more than likely shares that feeling as well. I know I, know I certainly do. You know, one, of the, one of the other things that I found fascinating about the book and about your account, especially Hoffa, just based on the research I've, I've done for what I'm working on, is how Hoffa seemed to succeed kind of epically. Epically. Where others before him, and I'm thinking specifically here of Big Bill Haywood and, and the International Workers of the World, who essentially tried to do what Hoffa did, they tried it on a much grander scale. And of course, they were ruthlessly suppressed by the government um, in, the, in the immediate uh, period of World War I and after and all the rest of that. But Hoffa's ability to understand that if you can capture the transportation systems, you can kind of dictate terms to pretty much anybody. Right, and so Hoffa had many advantages. One was he did control the trucks and the trucks controlled everything. I mean, if you can shut down the trucking system, you can shut down the country and you have large bargaining power. He actually never did it, but everyone thought he would. Yeah. Hoffa was an interesting character. He believed in, as labor leaders go, he believed in capitalism just on his own terms. He was not, he was, I don't know if I put this in the book, I don't think I did. He didn't like the great society because he, which is amazing for a labor leader because he thought it would lead the country to become, I'm, these are not my words, his, too slothful. He was a kind of rugged individualist. He was actually kind of a libertarian in a weird way. <laughs> uh, and he was also much more, um, not that this is a libertarian thing, but he was much more open to you know, Republican support than, than the Democrats. And he was, by all accounts, and Chucky told me this, and the labor historians, the economists made this quite clear, he was a genius at understanding labor and trucking markets, and he understood them better than the trucking companies. He basically organized the trucking companies at the same time he was organizing the workers. Um, and yes, you're right. He basically figured out how to use pressure points 
of not delivering something or threatening to shut something down as a way of bringing employers to his knees. So the usual process, the way labor law works in the modern times where you, you, know, you go through the Wagner Act process and you collect votes and you have a vote and all that, he, didn't, he went right to the employers and coerced them into begging him for a labor agreement because he could shut down their businesses like that. So yes, he had a lot of power. And the government was afraid of him. This is, you know, Kennedy in his book, The Enemy Within, Bobby Kennedy, he talked about um, how Jimmy Hoffa controls your lives and your lives are in his hands and he's a terrible guy because he controls transportation and we have to take him down. What, in your view, what was the ultimate genesis of this insane obsession that Robert F. Kennedy had with Jimmy Hoffa? So, Kennedy and Hoffa, as I talked about in the book and as other people have talked about, they were actually quite a lot alike. Uh, they were in weird, weird ways. They both wore white socks with their suits. They both would show off their prowess at doing push-ups. They were both incredibly hardworking, mercurial, they, uh, and they held grudges. Both of them did, and they hated each other. And they were, they were the same, but they were opposite. And I think Bobby, Bobby saw the world in black and white, good and evil. He really did. And he saw Hoffa, and he really believed this, and he said it, and he wrote it. He saw Hoffa as the epitome of evil. And when Hoffa kept beating him, getting off the hook, Kennedy got angrier and angrier and angrier and more and more obsessed. This is not my assessment. This is the general assessment of historians. So I think it was a combination of his, he had this obsessive, moralistic personality. He thought Hoffa was evil. And then when Hoffa kept beating him at his own game, he just became crazy to get him. And then suddenly he's in charge of the Justice Department with all the law enforcement and surveillance tools at his disposal. So that's, I think, the origins of it. One thing your book adds uh, to the uh, uh, story of presidential power uh, is, uh, well, you know, pardons have uh, been in the news quite a bit the, uh, uh, lately, uh, Trump's. Uh, <laughs> and Trump's they're going to be in the news more. <laughs> <laughs> You start with uh, Donald Trump uh, tweeting out uh, that he is the all caps absolute right to pardon himself. Uh, the, the recent wave of uh, pardons, uh, some involving war crime uh, defendants, uh, Rod Blagojevich, uh, Bernie Carrick, and so on. But uh, so, but an earlier controversial pardon or use of the pardon power commutation is uh, you know, Nixon commuting uh, Jimmy Hoffa's sentence to time served in December uh, 71. And uh, you know, there is long, some sort of payoff was long suspected. Uh, one of the things that came out of your conversations with Chucky uh, was a, a little detail on that. Um, is, uh, what I gather from the book is a pretty tense conversation that you had with, with uh, Chucky because he had, he did have this uh, allegiance to uh, Omerta uh, that uh, was tough to undermine and uh, it, it often got in the way of our conversations. Yeah, uh, but uh, here's the uh, in one of your conversations about uh, that the the commutation of Hoffa's sentence and whether there was a payoff. Uh, he, Chucky says to you, I'm just telling you as a person that is a square, the deal was $1 million and he comes home. And according to Chucky, he carried the briefcase uh, full of 
rolls of $100 bills uh, to a particular hotel room. Yeah. Yes, and so, and I, I, I spent a long time trying to figure out if I should keep this in the book because I can't prove this and I, uh, unless I could corroborate something, I tried not to put it in the book and this was at the edge of that, but I do believe it. Um, so the amazing story, if I could just give the backstory. So this, this chapter hasn't gotten as much attention as others in the book. For, for me, it's the most amazing. And I'll just give you the short version. So Hoffa's in jail. And Nixon has this amazing relationship with the Teamsters Union and the president that replaced Hoffa, Frank Fitzsimmons. And they're giving him millions in cash for his 68 election and for the upcoming 72 election. And more than that, Fitzsimmons is out there basically supporting Hoffa's economic policies, and it's all good for, excuse me, Nixon's economic policies, including wage and price control, which no other union leader was supporting. And, but there's enormous pressure on Nixon and Fitzsimmons to let Hoffa out. Um, but, but Nixon deviously and brilliantly with Mitchell and Haldeman and Ehrlichman and Dean and, uh, and um, Colson, Basically, it's really just an extraordinary story. They, they find a way to string Hoffa along, and they finally come up with a way to let Hoffa out, make him pay a million dollars, and then put a condition on his commutation so he can't get back into the government. And the conversations in the White House that really people haven't talked about before that they're having about this are just, just amazing. So the whole background is incredible. Talk about a corrupt pardon power. Um, but Chucky was the delivery person, and his, we talked about this many times over many years. There were some small corroborating details, and I came to believe him, especially, I don't know if you have the baseball bat. Can I? Oh, I'll turn. I'll hit you with the baseball yeah. bat. So, so I, can I just tell, read this? This is one of the funniest scenes in the book, I think. If I could just give me one second. So we had been, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure. I mean, I couldn't prove this, and he didn't always tell me the truth. And so I had to try to figure out whether he was telling me the truth. So we went over the story over and over, and I became convinced that he did it. And here's why, if I can just find this real fast. Um, and while you're looking yeah. for it, was it Chuck Colson in the room taking the cash? But I, did, I didn't put this in the book because, um, but I'll tell you, I just I kept it out. There are a lot of things I kept out because I just wasn't sure. So Chucky told me he went, it's the hotel with it that was called the Madison then. It's the one at the end of 16th Street uh, that was across from the Jefferson down the road. And he said he went upstairs and he had this briefcase full of the money and that someone opened the door and it was dark and he put it in there and it was over with in two seconds. But I asked him over and over what the guy looked like and he said he looked like a Nazi. And I said, what do you mean by that? He goes, brush haircut. That's, this is the way Chucky talks. Whoa. He had a brush haircut. Whoa. So basically, one day I showed him a picture of Haldeman, and he goes, that's the guy. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't, you know, I didn't put that in, but uh, <laughs> anyway, let me just find this because it, it's, it's a nice, um, if you just give me one second. Um, So just two little parts in this. So this was at the end of one of my cross-examinations. We spent a lot of time talking together. We became extremely close, but we had some frustrating moments. Um, I, I have these on tape. So that's why I could get these details. Can I say some bad words? Yes, okay? All right. 
So I said, are you sure? One day at the end of it, I said, are you sure you're the person who delivered the money? I was half joking. And he was, we've been over this a million times, and he just blew up. He goes, Jack, you know I'm tired of answering you. I really am. And he screamed. I'll get so fucking mad that I'll hit you with a fucking baseball bat. Who the fuck do you think takes the money? Bits ain't going to take it. Who could he trust to take it? And that's when he, I said, don't get mad at me. And he said, listen, okay, I'm just telling you as a person who's square, the deal was $1 million and he comes home. The thing that convinced me that he was telling the truth was at the end of one of these conversations, Chucky was very close to this Anthony Giacalone person, my Uncle Tony, who, and his, he learned about Omerta from Uncle Tony, and Uncle Tony was his godfather advisor. And at the end of one of these conversations, um, um, he, he, he became upset that he was telling me this. And he goes, I just wish Uncle Tony was alive. And I said, why? And he said, I could talk to him. I could talk to him about taking the money. I'm not sure I'm supposed to be talking about this. Uh, and it, it wasn't a Sicilian secret, so he should have been allowed to do it. But uh, he basically, my mom at that point said, what is he worried about? And I said, I think he's worried about talking about things he shouldn't be talking about. He's worried about being a rat. And then Chucky popped up and said, you're right. He was panicked about revealing secrets in a way that I will witness just one other time. That's later in the book. This is a quote from Chucky. I really didn't want to talk about this because it shows me being a no-good, son-of-a-bitch, mistrustful person, and that's what bothers me. It shows me being a rat. That's the point at which I believed him. <laughs> I think you'd call it his eccentric integrity at one point. Yeah, I came to see Omerta. So this is not my thing, Omerta. <laughs> and as I say at the end of the book, I saw it. You know, Chucky kept a lot of secrets from me, and most of what he told me that he shouldn't have came in one conversation where he just kind of broke down and told me some things and slipped out here and there. And I never pushed him beyond where he wanted to go. I, I, I really didn't. But you know, he hung on to this until the day he died, and it was basically the only principle. Everything else had been taken from him. He had been humiliated by being tagged with the Hoffa disappearance. He had been kicked out of the Teamsters. He really believed in this principle. For him, it was a principle of honor, and it was a, a real principle, and he hung on to it until the very end, and I did come to admire it, even though it was crime-hiding and self-serving, but I did come to admire it. When are we going to questions? Oh, about another ten. Okay. So, you know, so we've yeah we we still got a little bit of time. Um, is there anything? Well, you sure. Want? Um, you know the I actually I have the book on Kindle. I double checked. It's not a book about Trump. I I searched for the word Trump. Doesn't <laughs> doesn't show up. Uh, but I think we'd be uh, you know you're one of the most prominent and level-headed critics of, of uh, this presidency. And uh, you know, I think it would be a missed opportunity if we didn't talk about how it relates to some of the things sure. in the book. Um, so one thing that strikes me about the, this presidency, probably more than recent presidencies, is uh, you know, we come to understand how uh, a lot of what keeps the the presidency from the presidential office from reaching its full potential for abuse are a bunch of non-legal uh, norms, for lack of a better word. A lot of which grew up uh, after Watergate. Right. Uh, you know, you probably can't appoint your 
brother is attorney general, uh, uh, <laughs> or you couldn't after, after Watergate. Uh, and uh, although the president can fire his attorney general and is, a, you know, in some sense, the chief law enforcer in the country, uh, you know, we've we built up these uh, norms about uh, an arm's length relationship with, with uh, uh, at least particular prosecutions. Uh, you're not supposed to use the full power or look like you're using the full power of the Justice Department to screw your political enemies and, and reward your friends. And uh, you uh, wrote a piece uh, early on in the Trump presidency, which I uh, called, Will, Will Donald Trump Destroy the Presidency? Yeah. Um, and uh, it was... Uh, uh, October Atlantic 20, piece? Yes, yeah. uh, October of 2017. Right. And uh, I thought made a sound point that, uh, you know, Trump's norm busting will, I'm paraphrasing here, will, will only be embraced by his successors to the extent that it's seen as politically successful. Right. And at the time, you know, Donald Trump is pratfalling all over the, all over the place. He is being uh, held up by the courts, uh, and in part by his own incompetence. Yep. Uh, and uh, the, the upshot was uh, this norm, sort of dark norm entrepreneurship uh, would be viewed as a mistake if, uh, if things continued the way they were going. Uh, two and a half years later, I wonder if you're, uh, given what's happened in between, I'm, I wonder if you're, <coughs> as sanguine about the yeah. survival of those norms? Um, I'm not, a, so my next book, which I'm, it's coming out this summer, is called After Trump Recon, Re, Reconstructing the Presidency. So that would suggest that the answer is no. Um, <laughs> but the answer is not really no. Um, so this is not a popular opinion I'm about to utter. Um, Look, Trump has been a disaster for the presidency, and he has, and for the country, in my opinion. And he has revealed, I mean, you're a scholar of the presidency, and I've been one for a long time. I've learned a lot about the presidency from the Trump presidency, about what, about the things that were invisible that kept the president constrained and that shaped the presidency that Trump has exposed and ignored. So he's taught me a lot about the presidency and weaknesses and accountability and constraints on the presidency. Um, and so I've written a whole book with Robert Bauer about um, you know, how we need to rethink, have a 70s type comprehensive rethink of the presidency when Trump is gone. But that said, I still think it's an open question. So that essay was mostly about whether Trump would get away with lawbreaking. And despite this new article that just came out in the Atlantic this morning, and despite the conventional wisdom, I actually think that the institutions have, in the face of what can only be described as an unimaginable onslaught by the president and by many of his subordinates, I'm not saying it's held up perfectly, but I think the institution has held up remarkably well. I mean, how many people thought that the Mueller report was actually going to come out? Remember back in 2017 when we weren't sure if Trump was going to comply with judicial orders? Um, all of the things Trump has asked, almost all of the things he's asked his Justice Department to do in terms of going after political opponents hasn't happened. 
Barr has muddied the waters, not because I think he's under Trump's thumb, because I think he wants to do the things he's doing anyway, but as even Barr complained, the Trump's pr pressure on the Justice Department makes it impossible for him to do his job, and even Bill Barr was talking about norms of independence. So look, Trump has caused a lot of damage. He's, I think the most of the damage he's caused is not by law-breaking. And by the way, I don't need to tell people on this stage, his two predecessors weren't exactly what we would call <laughs> law-compliant presidents. And frankly, in many respects, Trump has been less law-defined than Obama and Bush. Let me just, you know, there, there haven't been any equivalent of the torture memos, the interrogation memos, or stellar wind that we know of. Uh, there hasn't been this robust commander-in-chief power that's been asserted all over the place. Obama's excesses were primarily taking regulations and rewriting them and invoking the take care clause to do whatever he wanted on the regulatory front. Trump hasn't done that to the same degree. So the executive is a big, powerful institution, and there are characteristic abuses of it, and Trump hasn't repeated many of those. He's done his own thing, and he's done his own, and, and, he's, and he's caused a lot of problems. Um, but I do think the institutions have performed better than they've been given credit for. I'm not sure, but, but, let me give you the but. And I, I do say on the norm front, it really does matter who the next president is. It was vitally important after Watergate that it was Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter. I wonder what you think about this. But Ford and Carter, um, they really took steps as presidents to try to, um, you know, not all the time, but much of the time, to try to restore confidence in the presidency and to put real constraints on the presidency. And a lot of these norms we're talking about grew out of those efforts. If we have a president after Trump like that, it's not looking like we're going to, but if we did, that would, I do think that a lot of his norm breaking would not be seen as fruitful and would not be repeated. Having said that, um, I'm more worried than I used to be. He has done things that I think future presidents, especially populist presidents of left and right, will repeat. The attacks on the media, the, um, the vacancy stuff, which it's something that Congress can at least fix. There's a whole, the list is long and the book is thick of reforms that need to be done. But I think it's too early to tell what's going to happen with the norms. It really depends on the next president. As I said in that essay, if, if after Trump has done this for four years, and he's gotten better at it, I mean, as you suggested, he's been incompetent. He's probably the least competent executive we've had. I, I can't remember a less competent one in American history, just in terms of understanding and wielding the powers of the office. And we should be thankful for that. But he's starting to figure it out. He's starting to figure out what his hard powers are, and he's starting to use them, and he's starting to get subordinates who will go along. And I do think if he's reelected and after all of this stuff, then I think then I'm going to become more worried, as I said in the Atlantic. But I'm on the end of things while I don't have my head in the sand and I realize what the problems are, and I think that he's done a ton of damage. I actually think the institutions have done pretty well. Yeah, I guess the concern would be there's, well, he's reelected. It looks like a political success. Yeah, uh, I agree. it is or not. I agree. Uh, and then over an eight-year period, yes. there's more and more attrition of, uh, you know, people who were playing by the old post-Watergate rules. I completely agree. And I think I said that at the end of the Atlantic. I think that it's one thing for him to do this for four years. It's rejected, and hopefully we have a president that tries to restore some of that and maybe a Congress that tries to restore. But if it's basically a validation of what he's done and he does it for eight more years, and by the way, those eight years will be, those second four years will be much less restrained than the first four. Sure. I completely agree. <laughs> 
He's already been, the conventional wisdom is you, you can own the impeachment as a gun, you can fire only once, but we've never had someone reelected after being yep. impeached. Well, I, I just think, um, yes, so I completely agree that if he's reelected, it's bad news for the presidency and for the country in that regard. I will say that one of the many things I learned about the presidency that I didn't understand is the extent to which presidents have been self-restrained by shame. Hmm. And, you know, just not wanting to be criticized for certain things. You know, norms have purchase if you feel a sense of shame. And the reason Trump is norm defiant is he just has no shame. And that's a, it turns out to be a hugely empowering Shame stance. practically killed Richard Nixon yeah. on the way out. <laughs> yeah, it did, actually. Well, I mean, it's he, not going to bother him. No, exactly. <laughs> uh, so we would we be, it up? well, I, I would say we would be remiss having brought you all this way talking about, next to Amelia Earhart, um, the biggest uh, unsolved missing persons case in American history, certainly in the 20th century. Who killed Hoffer? <laughs> I can tell you who the FBI thinks. And um, uh, I said this in the book, I'm not gonna mention the name of the person, I can explain why. The FBI currently believes, and I hope that they will tell the world, that um, and I can tell you why they think this. They think this through surveillance evidence and informant evidence. Hmm. They think that it was Anthony Giacalone's brother, Vito, who was involved in the run-up and the conspiracy, who was unaccounted for that day. They think he was the person who either picked up or was involved in coercing Hoffa into a car in the parking lot that afternoon. And they think that he was killed by a man who was a very low-level a uh, member of the Detroit Mafia at the time who rose in prominence. Uh, I know the man's name, but I don't see any point in mentioning it. He's dead. I'm not afraid of anything. But the reason I don't mention it, Vito has been mentioned as a suspect a long time. This other guy's been off the radar screen. And the, the FBI for years put out Chucky's name and, yeah. and, and tagged him with this. Yep. And um, they were wrong. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't want to write a book about why that's wrong and then but you are reasonably confident at this point that... That that's what happened? No. I am reasonably, I am 100% confident that's what the FBI thinks happened. Okay. I have no way of assessing... They seem very confident, but as best I can tell, you know, it's based on informant information and surveillance information. That's all I know. Yeah. And they've had a lot of informant information over the years that have been wrong. There is some corroborating evidence. There was a mobster who right before he died suggested that this guy killed him. Um, so it looked like it was, the conspiracy was national, but the execution was a local job. And, um, you know, a lot of people think that Chucky, once he became a suspect, he was a useful foil for the mob. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, he would, he, he would go on television to try to proclaim his innocence, but he didn't want to say anything bad about the mob, so he came off looking guilty, and that just kept the FBI in him more, and it was, a lot of people think it was a misdirection play. I don't know. With that, we will turn to questions. Uh, I would ask that you wait for the mic to come around. Uh, when, when I call on you, please give us your name and your affiliation, and uh, please do restrict yourselves to questions, not homilies. Thanks. Uh, the gentleman up here. Uh, thank you, for Professor Goldsmith. Uh, today is uh, uh, my name is Steve Klein. Uh, 
It's one of the first book events I've ever been to where I actually read the book. So <laughs> and I have to agree with all the praise. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, I wondered if you could speak a little more about the idea that you had, you know, you're a professor and you, you, you're, you're in, in your previous legal experience working against, you know, to fix FISA. Um, and yet you're going through thousands of pages of illegal wiretap transcripts. And I, I guess I'm curious, what did you have any tension about, about using you know, evidence that was, was taken in violation of the, of the Fourth Amendment. And, and I guess, you know, but since you did, uh, anything from the cutting room floor that didn't, maybe wasn't even relevant to the book that you found very are you, are you, interesting. Are you talking about from the early 60s or from the 2000s? No, the 60s. Well, again, I'm juxtaposing your work as an, an attorney yeah. with going in as a historian. Um, um, look, my views about government surveillance are complicated. I, I, when I was involved in it in the government, I didn't like what the government was doing. I didn't have, it wasn't my job to question the substance of what they're doing. I was trying to find a way to make it lawful if I could and to declare that it wasn't if I couldn't. People can criticize me for where I drew the line. Um, but I was very skeptical, in part for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, for, based on what I learned not related to the law about what they were doing. And I've grown more skeptical since I left the government and studied the history of surveillance and watched what's happened since then. Um, but I will say, I didn't understand, and you're writing a book about this, I didn't understand, I, I knew the surface history or prehistory to Stellar Wind and the surveillance state. I didn't understand, I'm not sure if this is what you're asking, I didn't understand until I read this book, um, several things. One, the government can't control itself when it comes to electronic surveillance. They just can't control themselves. And it doesn't matter what the legal restrictions are because it's such a, it's such a seductive tool. And it's, such, and it's a tool that, it, frankly, it does give them enormous advantage, even when it's not talking about the massive unnecessary use, but it can give them an enormous advantage in law enforcement and national security. And they, it's just it's been seductive since the beginning of when they've used it, and they've never been able to control themselves, point one. And this has been going on for almost 100 years now. Um, point two, the same exact thing that was going on with opportunistic opinions in secret in the face of national security fear, that is not a 2000 development. It's not a 1960s development. It goes back to at least FDR, probably before. And it's the same, it's the same basic pattern. Uh, and I was struck by, uh, you know, the pattern was longer and deeper than I thought. Third, the sheer scale, I mean, I'm, so I, I, I'm not a visceral anti-surveillance person. I, I mean, I lots of skepticism about it. But I, let me put it this way, I didn't, here's one of the many main things I learned in the book that I didn't know before. I'm not, again, I'm not sure this is what you're asking. I didn't understand what it meant to violate someone's privacy until I read these transcripts, until I saw the impact on my grandfather, on my stepfather. I didn't understand how abusive and how wrong and damaging and corrosive it is until I just read all this muck, thousands of pages, and imagined, you know, if that was happening to me, and then I saw the impact on my stepfather. So, I mean, that's a little bit more about my reactions to this stuff. Um, I definitely have a more, uh, a richer and more critical view of this stuff now than I used to, if that's what you're asking.
Other questions? Sir? Uh, I'm Carl Landwehr, George Washington uh, University. Um, you've had a unique perspective, I would say, on both criminality and on law enforcement. Um, and I'm curious what, and maybe you've just answered this, but uh, what do you think are the most effective kinds of controls on government institutions like the Justice Department to prevent but which elements of the Justice Department? Surveillance, law enforcement? Well, I'm thinking, you know, about what happened to Chucky, really. And, and uh, how, could you, how could you institute controls, transparency of some sort? Is there a way or do we, you know, we need a Justice Department. How do we control it? So that's a great question. And um, I don't have a great answer. Um, I mean, it's wrong what happened to Chucky. It's just, and it's, he's not the only person it's happened to. It's wrong because he was publicly accused of a crime he didn't commit. He was tagged with it credibly for his whole life. They knew for 25 years he didn't do it. One guy in the Justice Department wanted to find a way to make this public, but he couldn't do it because all the, all the processes and mechanisms are stacked against the government acknowledging this. And, um, and it ruined his life. And he's not the only one, and this happens a lot, I understand. Um, that said, I just, you know, this is not something I thought about too much. I thought about it some. I don't have a great solution. You know, there, you could, there's the usual things we can imagine. Ex post penalties on people who make mistakes to make them more cautious. You could have random inspector general reports. You could impose punishments and constraints ex ante or ex post that would change the incentives of law enforcement. And you could create mechanisms when they make mistakes to I think this is very hard to have them acknowledge their mistakes. It's very easy for them to put out a story that someone did it. There's no mechanism to take it back. So I'm afraid it's a cop-out. I don't have a great solution. The, the law enforcement would say that, uh, I don't think there would be a sympathetic room for this argument. Mm -hmm. Law enforcement would say that if you impose those ex-ante or ex-post penalties, we couldn't do our jobs. And this is, they would say, if they were being honest, this is just a cost of doing business. But I actually think that's like unacceptable. But I do not have a great solution. I'm sorry. I need to think about that more. Uh, and it was frustrating for me because I tried <coughs> to make his name clear. And all of the mechanisms were just stacked against him in so many ways. Um, and um, I have nothing good to say about the process. Sorry, I don't have a better answer. Other questions for Jack before we adjourn to let him sign some books, which we hope you will partake in? Yes, ma'am. Hi, hi, thank you. So this is not a question about your book, but it's a question about what you just said about um, the presidency um, uh, and the future of the presidency. Do you think that the destruction of the presidency would be as potentially dangerous if other branches of government weren't collaborative, such as the Senate? And you know, what is the, the role of someone like Mitch McConnell and his view of the usefulness of a presidency like Mr. Trump's on the future of this country? Yeah, that's hard for me to answer. Um, so I'm, I'm going to give you an answer that's not going to be satisfactory. So one challenge in writing a book about reforming the presidency is the problems in the presidency are just one slice of the problems in the country. And 
Yeah, I could have written a book about reforming Congress or about reforming the polity or reforming the electoral system or reforming campaign finance. All of these things factor into the pathologies of the presidency. And um, for a variety of reasons, we made a decision which we defend to focus on this. Um, I'll just say that um, I think that Trump is a cause, as much an effect of the problem of a breakdown in institutions in Congress and in electoral politics as he is a cause. And um, so I'm, I'm agreeing with you in general. I don't know exactly which evil you think McConnell has committed, but uh, and it's probably not something I'm expert on. But the problems we have with the presidency are not just about the presidency. So for example, the problem, one of the main problems with the presidency is that Congress has given away all of its power to the presidency. And um, it's not institutionally competent to take it back. And it can't do it. It doesn't know how. It doesn't want to. And until we fix that problem, you're not going to fix the presidency. I do think the presidency, as Schlesinger said, is indestructible. I think that for our government to work, we need a powerful presidency. You guys probably disagree with that. But I think that it needs to be reined in. And, and, you know, so that's just a great example. Almost all the problems of legal excess by Bush, by Obama, less so by Trump, were problems of Congress giving away too much power and then them running with it and Congress not checking it. And so there's only so much you can do to fix the presidency without fixing that prior problem. We deal with that in our book. But that's basically all I can say. I mean, it's not just a problem of the presidency. It's broader than that. And Congress is a, a, serious, a central culprit. I take it you guys agree with that or not? Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, being, being a former Article One guy, having worked yeah. over, over 10 years, yes, yeah. without a doubt. Schlesinger says somewhere that it's a, as much a matter of congressional abdication yeah. as uh, executive yeah. aggrandizement. Okay. When does the, uh, the book with Bob Bauer come out? This summer, July. Right. Well, then we'll just have to have you guys back. Uh -huh. Love that. And let's give it up for Jack. Thank you very much.